Welcome to the Makom Israel Teachers Lounge podcast, where we connect students and listeners with Israel by discussing and exploring current events and relevant issues. I'm your host, Michael Unterberg, here as always with co-host Alan Goldman. How are you, Alan? Doing well, Mike. All right. And today we have returning guests. Alan, would you introduce the guest? Very happy, very happy to. It's always a great conversation when we bump into Chaviv Redigor on the street or we get him into the studio to record their podcast with us. You make it sound like Um, we rumble. (laughs) Um, Of course, uh, he's mainly known for um, his role in the Times of Israel as a political correspondent and analyst. Um, So we love talking to him about um, Israel politics, the Jews, the world, and, and what have you. So... Um, thanks for coming and joining us today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Today we invited you really, when I read your piece discussing uh, Gordis's most recent book about American-Jewish relationship, you wrote a really fascinating piece about Jewish identity being somewhat different in Israel and America. So I really wanted to get your thoughts and insights. It's not, it, this is something that you've been thinking about quite a bit. Yeah, this is... Uh this is my uh, my main side hustle uh, is uh, Jewish identity. Um, because I, Israeli politics is kind of boring. You need like a something. You know, the Israeli politics is so thrilling and exciting uh, that it that it uh, that it gets boring. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, three elections in a year. Oh, we on. have. Uh, I I have come across a cabinet. Come across. Uh, um, I will think of the source. The cabinet discussions in 1949 about the West Bank, what to do with them, how to deal with them, the relationship between the new army they just founded and the politicians and who makes policy wow. and the Supreme Court. Uh, um, okay, that's an episode. Uh, Benny Morris actually is the source for that. Uh-huh. Uh, in uh, 1948, he uh, brings in uh-huh. some of those things. So, you know, Israeli politics on the one hand changed constantly and on the other hand, plus ça change, right? Right. Um, uh, but yeah, so the, the the question of Jewish identity is a question that we we think of as essentially an educational question. The Jews sometimes think of themselves as, as essentially an education system. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, it has uh, profound uh, implications for us, for who we are, for who we're going to be. Zionism is, in a very, very simple, shallow sense, a national movement, but in a in a deeper, if you read early Zionists, if you read Herzl, you know, Israeli kids don't actually read Herzl in school much. Let alone um, Pinsker or Hess. Let or alone, you know, Lilienblum, Lilienblum right? Yeah. And these people who came up with the Zionist analysis of why, not just that the Jews were not safe in Europe, why they're not safe in mm-hmm. Europe. There's an entire Zionist vision of the of what it modern modernization urbanization industrialization all these processes that utterly transformed 19th century europe a european in 1801 would not understand europe in 1899 that was it was uh, you know from the farm to the apartment building from mm-hmm. from uh, from family um, economic units to the right these are these deep deep transformations traumatic transformations that created marxism uh, and uh, and created all of the responses created the enlightenment created in the, among the jews liberalism liberalism the haskala we end the 19th century with parliaments everywhere the german mm-hmm. parliament was more powerful than the british parliament um and um and uh, Zionism comes out of that churning and out of that change and says, we have a very serious problem. And that serious problem is the way that the new uh, economics and the new societies were building their new identities. 
there would not be room in those new mass societies, mass identities, those vast imagined communities. I'm using terms from like 1980s sociology, mm-hmm. but but it's all in. You know, mm-hmm. Herzl was more of a salesman of this stuff, right. but it's all in. He, he wasn't it's an innovator. In right. Lilian Bloom. Um, he's, he's uh, you know, people like Shlomo Vineri like to say he wasn't uh, an innovator. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think he was, there was a lot more there mm-hmm. than uh, the professors tend to, tend to give him credit for. He was an activist innovator. He was an activist. <laughs> he, right. Yeah, First of all, it's not a small thing yeah. to take no. the Zionist Correct. case to the czar's interior minister and to the sultan's this and to it's the... It's not a small thing to get all the Jews you know, in one room. To correct. Get all the Jews the, in to one create the Zionist Or even Congress. to get 10% of the Jews uh, right, representatives exactly. in a right. That's, yeah, I don't think Herzl has to defend his resume. These are not small things, but I right. also think that Herzl brought, um, because he did this journey out of German letters into Zionism, he 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 sort of exemplifies the, the Zionist analysis where he's standing outside of the Ecole Militaire in Paris uh, as a journalist, watching the crowd screaming uh, about Dreyfus's, you know, shaming ceremony inside the Ecole Militaire. And he says, I don't understand, 20 years earlier, 1870 to 73, the German army had occupied Paris for three years. Mm-hmm. And Victor Hugo vows revenge and all of France hates Germans. There's nothing a Frenchman hates more than a German. And here's a German spy, which was what he was accused of, Dreyfus, why is the crowd screaming death to the Jew? Of all the things that the crowd should be angry about with this man, Jew is the least interesting thing about him. <laughs> and so he begins to sort of take this, it began before Dreyfus, but Dreyfus really kind of encapsulates, he starts to take this journey into this sociological analysis that Zionism brought, and which was unfortunately, horribly and tragically correct. It is worth saying that, you know, the fact that Zionism was proven right is one of the great you know, horrors and tragedies of modernity. Um, and, and is your analysis... Meaning that, that the Jews had no more place in, in, in Europe. So the Jews had no more place in Europe. And, and Herzl's last thing that he ever did before he died uh, was to write Alt Neuland, right. uh, where the dramatic tension in the book, it's this not very good sort of... It's not super readable. Yeah. The Judenstadt you can read, and, you know. Yeah, because it's quick and it's short. But Alt uh, Neuland is, uh, it's a little bit like uh, fan fiction where you mm. really have to be invested in it already <laughs> to uh, to enjoy it. But, um, but uh, there is a dramatic uh, sort of political fight in the book, in the new land of Israel, the new state of Israel, uh, which he imagines in the distant future of 1926. And the dramatic tension is the Jews... Some rabbi demands to, you know, start oppressing the Arab community. So the Jews leave these European mass societies that hate minorities and, and structurally must hate minorities because minorities call into question the authenticity of their identities, of their brand new identities that they insist are ancient. Um, and the Jews go to this land and build their own mass society with their own new identity and then immediately turn on their communities. That's Herzl's great fear, right? Mm-hmm, right. Which is ironic that... Today you have right wing groups like Im Tirzu using Herzl. They've they've never read Herzl. You can't read Herzl and have Im Tirzu's political agenda. So anyway, long story short, um, identity and how we think about Jewish identity created Zionism. There would not be an Israeli army without a new Jewish revaluation, rethinking of how we think about what it is to be a Jew. And there are now two Jews in the world. There's the Jew that Zionism built, the Hebrew speaker, and then there's the Jew uh, that uh, Zionism did not build, and that's the English speaker. And they have had 
everything I've just said only counts as the sort of instinctive, innate vision of the world for half of the Jews. The Jews from Yemen, the Jews from Tsarist Russia, the Jews who ended up here. The other half of the Jews went through a completely different century and a half. Radically different, utterly different. In everything that we think of as the history of these Jews who ended up in Israel, the American Jews went through the other history. Which they is? Have, I, mean, in, I mean, I guess yeah. the only thing I would say to that, to push back a little bit on that, would be that, yes, I, absolutely 100%, the experiences of, a, of an American Jew are very, very different than the experience of an Israeli Jew, for sure. But Israel has, has greatly influenced the identity of those Jews who are living in uh, outside of Israel still, right? This uh, is one right? of the interesting things, right? right? Is it? 90% of the diaspora speaks English. Right. I mean, the, the only Jew who survived the 20th century not without coming under the protective arms of Zionism is the English-speaking Jew, which says a great deal that, you know, at, at such a pivot of history when everything else is destroyed, the fact that the Jews of America and Canada and Australia and Britain were not destroyed right. is something that America, Australia, Britain, and Canada can take to the bank for the next thousand years. Right. Well done to them. Um, but uh, there is a, those Jews have had tremendous investment of their identity and anxieties in their story in the other half of the Jews that ended up in Israel in right. ways that create an interesting interface. I just have to say, you know, I'm not sure American Jews um, uh, actually had um, a good sense of what Israel ever was, rather than Israel as some kind of a cartoon in the American Jewish imagination that had a tremendous influence. They have a sense of being pro-Israel without really understanding what Israel is, and therefore yeah. without really being Zionist right, for the but, most part. Right, well, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. Right. I, I think one of the great spokespeople of American Jewry is Barack Obama, uh, both statistically and because he really profoundly framed his own life in terms that are very, very Jewish terms. And I once wrote a long essay about this, but but he gives speeches that are very Jewish speeches. He talks to Jews and goes to synagogues and gives speeches at synagogues. That he can't make decisions, very all rabbinic. Of, all of his early... <laughs> he sees both sides of every he argument. He sees both sides of every argument. All of his early supporters are Jews. All of his policymakers are Jews. Every mistake he made in the Middle East was a mistake of American Jewish liberals sitting next to him, telling him to make that mistake. Um, so, um, so he... Uh, uh, I think is a good representative of the American Jewish vision. And he once complained about Israel, that Israel uh, is leaving its liberal uh, roots. Right. And he says, you know, Israel has to be careful not to lose the liberal traditions of Golda Meir. <laughs> you, know, of, you know, and he, he says this, you know, we don't forget where you come from mm -hmm. and go off into some kind of populist craziness with Benjamin Netanyahu. To an Israeli ear... <laughs> There's something so profoundly ridiculous about that that you and just to explain what was ridiculous about that, until 1966 was it? Levi Eshkol lifted the military curfew yeah. on the Arab citizens of Israel. Yes, mm -hmm. Golda Meir did not believe there was such a thing as a Palestinian people. Something mm -hmm. that Benjamin Netanyahu has always believed, or at least since the 80s. Right. Um, what do you? There is no measure um, of um Israel. Shum, right. Um Shmum is Ben Gurion. Ben Gurion. What the hell is international the law or international community? Yeah. I don't even know what these words mean. Um, you know, Israel by every measure is more well, liberal than it ever was. And it is getting more liberal on gay rights, on, on just everything. The Palestinian uh, conflict, it's very specific, for very specific reasons. And after shattering Israeli politics and dividing Israeli politics for two generations, 
is completely stuck. Yes, on every other facet of Israeli society, from the economy to minorities to Israeli Arab experience in Israel, everything is liberalizing and opening. Everything, including during the last 10 years of Netanyahu's government. Uh, just for example, these last two Shabbos, the tra- public transportation ran in Tel Aviv. Yep. Absolutely. And and the last 10 years of Netanyahu governments has, have been the, the biggest investors in the Arab community in, in education and transportation. There are more Arabs in high tech. There are more Arabs on the on the bench. Responding to complaints, but they responded and increased budgets to Arab right, schools. Right. And there are tremendous complaints and there are tremendous problems and there's tremendous discrimination and everything is true. Israel is better than it ever was. That's all I'm arguing. Not that it's great, that it's better. And you're not arguing that there are... That, so what that, is that, Obama talking about? Right. Right. And the answer is he's talking about the 19, not 1960s Israel, but the 1960s American Jewish cartoon of Israel, mm-hmm. which was perfect and idyllic and progressive and lovely and loving. And, and not only Jewish, American liberal perspective of yes. Israel. And the well, not just in Jewish, the, 60s, the left American Israel. Jews were liberal. But I'm saying also, mm. but it wasn't just the Jews, right? right. I mean, when you have, um, you know, Pete Seeger singing Jewish folk songs, Israeli, Sena, Sena. Right, Israeli folk songs, because, uh, and Kibbutz, and they're, they're talking about... Well, right, and Exodus that, is this hit, hit movie, Exodus, and all yeah. Americans fall in love with Israel, this right. place where everyone's a good guy Exodus fighting was, for the truth. was on the New York Times bestseller list for over a year. I mean, it was mm-hmm. a psychotic bestseller. There's, right. um, there's nothing like it today outside of Harry Potter. Um, Everybody loves a story about Harry Potter because he's an underdog who's really a good kid right. who manages to fight against the forces of evil. And Exodus right. is the same thing. The lost all his family. Right. Yeah. <laughs> First, right? That's a yeah. Story, so the Jews right? are the victims, yeah. were then the victims of imperialism, and the left loved them. And the Jews today are the imperialists, and the left hates them. At no point did the left have any good sense of the actual people of Israel. And that's true as well of American Jews. So even when American Jews think about Israel, believe in Israel, talk about Israel, go to APAC conferences, visit Israel. I don't want to exaggerate because people do have very complex experiences and see very complex things and understand Israel. In and you're talking ways. in general terms. And I'm not, talking in yeah. general terms. Uh, and maybe I'm not talking about the 200,000 Jews who really in various ways live in between the two societies. But no, uh, they do not actually understand the real Israel. And the gap is true no matter how much we talk. In fact, one of the fascinating things about this gap is we constantly talk and we use words like Jew, like rabbi, like community, like diaspora. And these words mean radically different things in these two communities. And we don't know it because the words are the same, even if their semantic meanings are different. So I'm going to ask and push it in, in our direction a little bit. You guys, you know, throw me out if you don't want to go there. It, I, I think we experience this a lot in the gap year, Right in our schools that we go into. Students who are coming here for a year to learn and very small percentage of them want to really engage with this Israel that you're talking about. And we are, we just had this conversation last last night that maybe we need to change our tactics of Israel education of how we, you know, how we teach about Israel. Like, because you're 100% right in that sense. Well, Um, I mean, just to give an example back to Herzl. Herzl says in Der Judenstadt, he says... You know, everybody talks about the Jewish question because it's alive and a real problem, but we're not discussing it at the national level where it needs to be addressed. And I think that's still true. I think I think diaspora Jews are discussing it as he says, you can discuss it as a religious or a sociological problem, but that's not where it is. It really is a national problem. And by not discussing it there, you're you're going to be in trouble. By the way, Jews who live outside of Israel don't want to be called diaspora Jews, right? That's not politically correct today even. Because they don't want to see that 
that range of it, diaspora means oh you have a uh, you know there it's there's funny, the but, right yeah. place right that and diaspora is a, a translation in Hebrew of tfutzot which right. is the gentler you know Israelis right. used to say galut exile right. they're mm-hmm. the Jews exactly. of the exile and that was considered so judgmental that right. we all moved to tfutzot diaspora right. now that's judgmental it's right. you know sign of the times but um, can you can I, you I think so, well, it, so it, the important point here is this whole question of the historical experience. Um, is the very beginning of the conversation. Because then you get into um, looking at the ways in which they're different from each other, and they have different assumptions that are so fundamental and so vast that they're hard to see. Um, and one of the things in the piece was, I think the last third of the piece, it was a very long piece, but was my suggestion to what's, you know, Gordis sort of la- tr- calls to launch a conversation that is not uh, American Jewish federations coming to Jewish agency conferences. Mm-hmm. I speak as former Jewish agency. I speak with great love and admiration. But nevertheless, all getting together at a big conference in Jerusalem and, and you know, wringing our hands about young people, you know, going off uh, on college campuses to do their thing. That is not the conversation we need. And that is the last 30 years of conversation. What we need uh, is a discussion of just how profoundly different we are and, and to realize and to think carefully about it and then to build an education that understands it and that forces these two people into a room where sparks will fly and must fly because these are completely different it has creatures. has to be out in the open. And, and the example I brought, and, and Gordis does a good job bringing quite a few questions of, of the historical experience, you know, even after 19th century Zionism, right? Uh, Israelis uh, generally uh, are the children of refugees. Mm-hmm. They're all essentially the grandchildren of yeah. refugees. And so they... they Including believe- my children. <laughs> not refugees, but immigrants at least. Um, uh, no, not immigrants from, from America. Yeah, yeah. No, right? I know, I know. So I, that would not count well, as refugees. Unless, no, I'm saying not refugees, but, but again... The, but the, the 95% are, are yeah. grandchildren refugees right. in that exact sense where they had no choice. They could not remain in Baghdad. They could not remain right. in Unless Sana'a. you see all diaspora Jews as refugees, in which case... American Jews are refugees from the 19th century. Israeli Jews are refugees from 70 right. years ago. And we're all refugees from the first century. And, <laughs> you know, that's already spiritual. Yeah. But, but as, a, as a matter of sociology and as a matter of assumptions about the world, Israelis assume about the world in a deep, deep way, essentially what the Kurds assume, because the mm-hmm. Kurds have a very bad experience today living as a minority in the Arab world. And that is build yourself a big honking army or they will come for your kids. Who's mm-hmm. they? One day it's the Germans, one day it's the Russians, one day it's the Arabs. There's always a they. You don't believe me? Go to the Kurds who don't have an army of their own. And you will find out that even America... They even have an army, but they don't have the infrastructure Even America will... will, Right, right, exactly. And so uh, that is is something that... That is the kind of sort of gap of historical experience. American Jews have been protected for the last hundred years by America. And... They have, you know, gone to war and they have committed war crimes and they have done all the dirty things of history, American Jews, but they never did it as Jews. They did it as Americans. And so they think of Jewish identity as something completely divorced from history mm-hmm. and from the history, the compromises and all the sort of bad uh, things that you do in history and the wars and be, the bad guys coming be, for because you. Because it's their religious identity, not because their it's a separate national identity. identity. It's not right. their national identity. That kind of a divide means that an American liberal Jew, a progressive Jew, shows up in Israel and says, how can a Jewish army be immoral? Right? right. In America, the progressive says, it's a friggin' army. We should keep it as moral as possible. At some point, it's got to shoot somebody. Right? right? And then come to Israel and they say, a Jewish army, a Jewish army, how can this thing possibly be immoral? So there's this sense that what Americans think of when they think of Jewishness and what Israelis think of when they think of Jewishness are these two radically different things. One is this Middle Eastern tribe looking out for itself, and one is this sort of very pristine, never has to dirty its, you know, its hands in any kind of history 
religious identity within America. Using the vague term Jewish values to summon up some sort of liberal... Jewish values and tikkun olam and whatever these things are. not necessarily clear what it is, but it means something like right. secular humanist. Right. Like, if, if American Judaism thought in the ways that Israeli Judaism thinks of itself, American Jews would wonder what the Jewish solution is to North Korea, right? Mm-hmm. Is the Jewish solution let millions more starve for the next few decades? Is that the Jewish solution? Enable, is that Jewish ena- ethics? When Americans, when American Jews look at North Korea, they say, oh no, this is not, categorically, this isn't what Jewishness is. Jewishness is what I do at home, like, like when I go to my Buddhist temple and meditate, that's what I go to my Jewish temple and meditate. That's what Jewishness is. Whereas Israelis think of their Jewishness as this collective solidarity and defense that has to go off into history and actually solve hard problems. Like and how do you might, relate to a regime like North Korea that right. is, or Iran has concentration or camps, right. or Gaza, right? What is the Jewish answer to Gaza when Hamas comes for your kids? It, American Jews, it's very easy. The Jewish answer is always joy and happiness and generosity and kindness. I mean, if, if in the more murkier, I mean, you pick nice, clear, I think, in some ways, you know, problems. But the more murkier problems is the real politics of what do we deal with with governments like Hungary and... Poland. And other places in Poland where there's clear anti-Semitism. They're becoming more autocratic. And, and, but yet Israel as a... How does Israel you know, relate to those countries? We need allies. We need support in Europe. Israel is absolutely torn. There are debates inside the Likud party. Uh, you know, these people are on our side in a Europe that is not on our side. Uh, right. On Iran, for example, it's existentially not on our side. Right. Uh, and yet their Jews are scared. How could Israel, and everything Israel is... Yeah be on their side but yet so we these divides are hard these divides are real and by the way it has real ramifications for the jews living in those countries right you know right uh Uh, and 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 israel has to tread these you know line and you can say no absolutely screw it all zionism is is that jews don't have to be scared bomb hungary who cares absolutely not don't accept you could say that you can make that argument you lose you lose right. the veto in in the European uh, various you know ex- the executive and all these different institutions. By the way, this has been with us since right the 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 deal the with the Germans the that the reparations yeah the, or, the, or, no not or, reparations the reform the 1930s Kostner and, no, and those before even earlier oh the, the the bring us the Jews yeah, bring us the Jews went to, to to basically pay the Germans to bring the Jews right, over and right. when there was a boycott right. on the Germans and the Nazis in the 1930s right, right? American yeah. Jews what did they do in the Holocaust they essentially sat around and tried to look super American so nobody notices them. Right. Uh, which, with all due respect, again, is the separation of these two worlds, right? Which Israelis don't have the option to do. Um, so these are profound differences. And every time someone from J Street worries about the immorality of Israeli policies, a lot of the complaints J Street has about the immorality of Israeli policies are shared by a great many Israelis who have served in the military and know exactly what they're talking about. So it's a, I'm not saying they should be quiet, and I'm not saying they're necessarily wrong. I'm saying a lot of these kinds of assumptions come into play so that J Street speaks in a way, um, and uh, Gordis brought an example that I quoted from his book, but there are thousands of these examples, where one of the founders of J Street, um, uh, whose name escapes me, uh, once Jeremy, said in a... Jeremy. No, not Jeremy Benami, someone else who was a founding oh, member of okay. the board, um, once said in a panel, uh, you know, if, if it turns out that in Israel, a Jewish state in the Middle East can't exist except by constant war, maybe it's not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Which sounds super rational and reasonable uh, in a convention center in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. But 
the Jews who actually founded Israel are not American Jews. America was not the other option. After America passed the immigration laws in 1924, all the Jews after that had nowhere else to go, literally, right? So the Jews right. of Iraq, uh, Baghdad, <laughs> I point this out, the, the city of Baghdad was something like a third Jewish mm -hmm. in the early 30s. For, and for the previous 2,000 years And in the late 60s, or in the early 60s, by the early 60s, it was zero Jewish. There wasn't mm -hmm. a Jew. There wasn't a living, breathing Jew. Or maybe they found the three Jews left around There's the last always city. a few, yeah. There's one last Jew in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. I want to imagine New York City is something like 15, 20% Jewish. Imagine if mm -hmm. New York City in 20 years emptied of every single Jew. Every kind of Jew, the old, the young, the Haredi, the liberal, right. the progressive, the Democrat, the Republican, the Trump voter, the Obama where voter. Where would they go? E Never mind where they go. Yeah. Every no, single Jew, yeah. as a matter of history and fact, actually literally got up and left. Whether they could sell their apartment, whether they couldn't sell their apartment, it didn't matter. Every Jew left, no matter who they right. were. You would suddenly know something very profound about New York City. That's what happened to the Jews of Baghdad. So this whole question of are the Jews refugees or not refugees or this or that, the Jews of Israel do not believe that the founding of Israel was a question of a should more, we, um, should is we, it should, a good I think? How it, immoral will it be in 20 years? How right. immoral will it be in 50 years? In the grand moral, it was literally yes or no to living on this earth. Right, because that's, that was exactly the question you're saying, is where do you go? Well, because we have in Israel, there is a place to go now. And the Jews of Baghdad had a place to go. And, and, then, and Israelis right? will debate how to do it, but not if. How to should. do it, whether I'm doing it well, whether I but should have. if, if is not a question. If is not a question. And if is only a question to people, not to, when, when a guy like, like J, when someone from J Street shows up here and, and, you know, and sits there with their moral anxiety and tells the Israelis, you, you know, if Israel isn't moral, it will, it will fall, it will die, it will collapse. The Israelis here this sort of country club morality completely detached from everything they know about history, everything they know about the region, and someone who has only, it's essentially privilege. It's everything that the progressives talk about privilege, that is privilege. American Jewish lecturing to Israelis about morality. However... <laughs> But we do. I mean, what, I mean, yeah. it yes, is a society yes, where we yes, argue no. about I'll morality. I'll leave it there for a second, and then yeah. <laughs> yeah. no, we do no, argue as Israelis. Yeah. We make no, moral arguments. We we demand yeah, morality about Israelis who will make the same exact arguments. Who, as you said before, served in the army. Who continue? Who, who make the same argument that if, if we are not a moral country, yes, we will not. We will not be able to continue, and therefore we have to make all kinds of um, moral decisions, whether it be Palestinians and. Uh, and making it possible for a Palestinian state to come in, or you know, Look, I once talked for to example, Amir so. Levine, who's a former uh, major general in the IDF and uh, very much a you know labor or even merits guy, very left wing, and he says, you know, we have to pull out of the West Bank to separate from the Palestinians, and so I said to him, you know, great, we pull out of the West Bank, they come for us, right? Mm -hmm. The West Bank is the highlands overlooking our population centers; it's sixteen or twenty or whatever times the size of Gaza. We will. I mean, it's war. It's endless war. Look, mm -hmm. we pull out of Gaza, Hamas takes over, right? America pulls out of Iraq, ISIS rises. Every mm -hmm. time you pull out of somewhere in the Middle East today, it's filled by bad guys. How right. do you pull out of the West Bank? All the classic Israeli complaints. Mm -hmm. And Amir and Levine said, um, no, no question. We pull out. There's going to be a war. They're going to come after our kids. No question. And then we bomb them and we shoot them and we kill them. and we mm -hmm. No question. And it's better than occupation. Right. In other words, the, the Israeli argument 
for well, that was the argument for the pull out of Gaza. The Israeli no, for the argument for pull out of Gaza. Ariel Sharon said, "They come after me. I'm gonna I'm gonna smash them." Exactly. Yeah. And he was telling Israelis, "Don't worry, it's safe." Exactly. Well, after same, but the same idea. After 2006, so nobody thinks idea. it's safe. But, but when, same an, idea, when gonna... an Israeli wants J Street's vision, yeah. the Israeli is saying, "This is Amiram Levine's grandkids are going to be shot at." He's saying, I get it. I know they're going to be shot. I'd rather we have this war. I, a major general, I, someone whose grandkids are going to be on the front lines, I'd rather we have this war than that my grandkids be occupiers. I'd rather have a war across the border than, than crush an intifada from within my within my. He's control. making a moral choice. Yes, or when I'm not crushing an intifada, that's a momentary war. It's the constant, permanent right. 52 years right. of violent oppression. right? I'd rather wars where I know they're coming for me than my occupation. Of well, that. it's also, you know, Americans Which are like, not why can't we make, again, right, again, it's we, not we, we should, why can't we make peace and live happily with our neighbors is not the Israeli left argument. The Israeli left argument is how do we separate from these people who want us dead? Right, and what price are we willing to pay? Because and that's also a moral price. argument. In other words, the moral argument in, it, it seems to me that sometimes the moral argument as phrased in, 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 in the diaspora is how can we do the good, right thing? And in Israel, it seems to be What's the least bad way out of this? Right. Which is a absolutely moral decision. You, the moral decision is the best of your options, not not a fantasy solution that, that you and, walk away. And that's why Israelis can't listen to American Jews. And we have to say, because this is exactly one half of the discussion, there's the other half. American Jews are not stupid. American Jews are not billionaires, every one of them. American Jews are not naive. What American Jews are is a Jewish community of millions who have spent the last 130 years, roughly, being rescued by the very morality that they are now advancing as a rescue of Israel. In mm-hmm. other words, it is they are responding to a, their own opposite historical experience. So American Jews in the 1930s couldn't get into Harvard. The president of Harvard, a guy named Lowell, uh, thought there were already too many Jews, and Jews cheat on tests. Right. And well, then uh, Judge uh, Learned, Judge Learned, fair Hand, about me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, Judge Learned Hand responded to him, and he said, uh, "You know, Episcopalians also cheat on tests, right?" Mm-hmm. And so Lowell famously responds, uh, "You're changing the subject, Your, <laughs> Your Honor. We were talking about I'm Jews, <laughs> right?" And that's sort of classic, simple, sort of banal American Jewish anti-Semitism, American anti-Semitism that Jews experienced, and it was a completely universal experience of American Jews mm-hmm. uh, in the 30s, in the 40s, in the 50s. Uh, and, of course, the last president of Harvard uh, is a Jew and is only a president of Harvard after being the Secretary of the Treasury of the United States, right? Jews went through a process from Washington's letter to the Newport Congregation, uh, you know, where Washington uses that famous phrase, the governor of the United States shall give to bigotry no sanction to, you know, all this. Um, which, by the way, he literally stole from the speech of Moshe Sechas in Newport when he visited, who gave the speech. We now witness the great founding of this liberty land. It was like a hip hop sample. And he said to Bigotrino Sanction that the Jewish speech maker, you know, gave those words first and Washington took it. And he took it as a signal that he heard the speech. He's responding mm-hmm. to the speech. He's quoting the Jew back to him and saying this is, you know, so the Jews have this narrative of themselves. And it's the reason American Jews are in the room at every important stage of the African-American uh, civil rights movement. They're mm-hmm. in the room at the founding of the NAACP. The white people in the room are Jews. The white people in the front row in Martin Luther not King only, when he's also, marching yeah. in the mall, not, there are others. Of but, course. I mean, the Jews are more than half of them mm-hmm. or some crazy amount. It's, you yeah. know, the Jews are, 
you know, 1% of America, 2% of America, depending on when you're counting. Uh, but they are 40%, 60% of the white civil rights movement. There are Jewish civil rights the workers buried in the ground in the South. The one Jew to be lynched with blacks yeah. lynched. Yeah, yeah. The one per- white person to be lynched is a Jew. Obviously, it's going to be a Jew. Everybody knows it. The Civil Rights Bill of 64 is literally written in the Religious Action Center of the Reform Movement in Washington. There was a Jewish religious advocacy group writes the first draft of those lawyers in that room are literally doing it as the now the, the black community in america built the black civil rights movement that wasn't mm-hmm. i'm not arguing the jews did it right. i'm arguing that as soon as the, the ones jews who helped, saw yeah. the black experience the jews became obsessed with the black with experience. helping it and there's a reason that the 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 only group that votes like african americans for obama were jews and there's a reason that all of obama's earliest supporters were jews there's a reason for all of this and it's that where the blacks go that's where America goes. The Jews arrive in America for the very first time in history, discover a land that is deeply, deeply individualistic and Protestant and doesn't have these national identities back in Europe. And they can be free and they are free and they are freed by them. They experience anti-Semitism, but the whole story of America as they perceive it is the story of coming out of this anti-Semitism with a great big moral, you know, crusade that liberates everybody and the one place where America was never America, where Thomas Jefferson and George Washington themselves the, the, were terrible, horrible slavers while writing these letters about liberty to the Jews, is the African-American experience. So where the African-American experience goes, that's the future of America. Mm-hmm. And that's the future of the Jews of America, therefore, as a minority in America. So the American Jews have these terrible, deep, fundamental anxieties. We see it in their politics, even if we don't see it in their language, in their, in their conscious words conscious phrasing of it about American liberalism and about American individualism and about the whole sort of the whole edifice of America's sense of itself. And then they come to Israel Mm -hmm. and they see an occupation. So we have these two peoples that have spent 150 years building radically different understandings of how history works. And they're not wrong. They're great grandparents. Right. Right. Had this debate exactly. You're not saying either side is right or wrong. You're saying understand the perspectives that both sides come from. I lean to the Israeli side. Me I too. suspect but, the but world. That's not your, but that's not the point of but, your analysis. Yeah, here. but not, not ideologically. I suspect that the world is a lot worse than American Jews give it credit for. Mm-hmm. They are protected by America, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't for a second take the American Jewish moralizing, which Israelis write off, and we talked about how and why they write. I don't for a second take that as, uh, as uh, shallow, as naive, mm-hmm. as country club morality. Uh, the American Jews are responding to fundamental anxieties that keep them up at night and drive them out to marches and 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 cre- and created a world of American Jewish advocacy. There is no minority in America, not the huge minorities, Latinos, Germans. Nobody knows this, but Germans are one of the biggest minorities in America. Asians. Uh, there are there is no minority in America with the kind of institutions that the Jews have built, and those institutions are built out of essentially anxieties, anxieties that their kids won't be Jewish, anxieties that America won't be America. Uh, all these anxieties created all these institutions from ADL and APAC to the federations to the JCCs, these vast, vast things. There's nothing like it anywhere in the world, never mind in America. The federation system is the second biggest charity in America after the United Way. And the United Way is all the Goyim. You know, it, it's, it's, it's this enormous, it's, I think they have, I hope my numbers aren't 10 years out of date, something like $13 billion in endowments, the federations. And, and they are this immense, immense, and their lobby in Washington is this enormously important welfare lobby that is, that is one of the more important lobbies in Washington that nobody talks about because it's not 
sexy, but it delivers on actual well, legislation. To, to give you an example, I think supports your point that the American Jewish community is built on anxieties. If you look at the National Museum system and you see like the Native American Museum, which is celebration of Native American culture, you look at the African American Museum, which has so much about African American culture, and then the Jewish Museum is a Holocaust museum. <laughs> it's a Holocaust museum. Like what? What happened, guys? Yeah. Like yeah, because because it's a it's. And I don't know, but I would put a great deal of money, maybe more than my wife would like, on the on the uh, contention that if we look carefully at the African American Museum and the Native American Museum. We'll find a lot of Jews there. Donors, you mean? Donors, builders, planners, Mm -hmm. people, initiators. A a part of the Jewish anxiety is making sure America is... That minorities are... Minorities, right. Well, right, the famous uh, poem, right? The, after the after the Holocaust, they're undoing right. Niemöller. Right, right, exactly. I don't want them to come after the Native right. Americans. I don't want them to come after the African Americans. Because I know if they because go, then they're coming after me. Exactly. But it's not a lesson they learned in the Holocaust. It's the fundamental American Jewish anxiety. You see it in the speech by Moshe Seichas to George Washington in 1789 or 1790, and it's there. It's he literally just lays that out, and Washington's response lays out his response to that anxiety, and then comes along the Holocaust. The Americans just do nothing, but they feel and think and worry about it constantly and turn the Holocaust into a ideology, but it isn't actually a new ideology. It's using that vocabulary for the very old, original, primordial American Jewish anxiety. And the Israelis, of course, are also a society of anxiety. I think Israelis, the whole point of solidarity and the army. It's an existential. It's an existential. Guys, we're small people. Most small peoples disappear. Most small peoples in the Middle East have already disappeared. Uh, you know, the Sunni Arab Middle East was never this heterogeneous. Europe, after World War II, pretended to become super liberal and enlightened because it had literally cleaned itself of all minorities. There were no minorities. Where they needed to, they traded populations. Three million Germans were kicked out of Poland and, and the Czechoslovakia. Yeah. After Poland the war. today is 90% uh, white Catholic. It was everybody not changed the borders. Yeah. The whites, the darks, the browns, the, the Roma, everybody was either killed, murdered, or switched borders. And then Europe became unbelievably enlightened. And guess what? Suddenly there's a minority again in Europe. Now that we suddenly have a minority again in Europe, the far right (laughs) is winning 20% in an election in places like France. Yes. In other words, Europe doesn't get credit for enlightenment. It was saved by America. The part that America saved is the free part, the part that the communists say, the Russians say, is the unfree period of... It goes into this period of becoming the moral beacon to the world, and now suddenly uh, the, the, the French National Front is winning elections as soon as there's too many Muslims. So uh, the, the... And the, the Yellow Vest people are yelling about how terrible Jews are also. So. Right. So the Jews have, have strategies for modernity. Modernity is this whole new challenge, um, and it's a new challenge because essentially technology has advanced to the point both military technology, guns, computers, and also uh, uh, bureaucratic technology. The bureaucratic modern state has become so totalitarian in the sense that you don't you don't burp, you don't walk anywhere, you don't you know you don't buy groceries without vast arms of the state dealing with ev- and that's in a democracy, right? Never mind in China, mm-hmm. uh, dealing with every aspect of your life. So those technologies, those bureaucratic technologies and other technologies have meant that minorities now, unlike 500 years ago, can actually be exterminated, can actually be annihilated. You can actually disappear. The Holocaust doesn't happen without IBM. Yes, exactly. And, you know, and welcome to, and, and the gas and the bullets, and the yeah. welcome to uh, the Israeli Jewish strategy and welcome to the American Jewish strategy, both of which have 150 years of, of, of history to them. And before I finish this speech, <laughs> just, um, and one last point is, even that's only touching the surface of the gap. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and a third of my piece is about this question of Protestant versus Catholic, where Israelis are Protestant, Americans are Catholic. I mean, the opposite. Yeah. Americans are Protestant, Israelis are Catholic. Um, and that's a fundamental ways that they understand what it is to be a person, not even a Jew, but a person, and how they structure their identities, which I mean, we can get into, but that already goes to a whole nother... Right. I urge uh, our listeners to go to the Times of Israel, read it, and click on all the yeah, ads. Yeah, we're, we're, <laughs> <laughs> well, we're putting the link into the piece, but it's... But we, we, we cover this conversation by saying, well, most like 90% of Jews are pro-Israel. And that is true, but that's not the same as having the same sort of identity assumptions. So I found the piece very, uh, I mean, it's what we teach and talk about a lot. It was, it was, it was a well-articulated uh, uh, expression of a topic that we think is, needs to be brought out into the open much more. Yeah, and I, I, we see this, you know, Jews who say they're pro-Israel, the question becomes, you know, what Israel are you pro? Israel's definitely whatever it is you're thinking of, but it's also 700 more things because it's a real society. We have 2 million schooled kids who just went to school this morning. Like, we're actually real people. Mm-hmm. So what Israel are you, like, deeply enamored with? You know, if you love us too much, we find that a little weird, right? <laughs> like, Well, you can't, you know, to fall in love with an idea is different than falling in love with a person because right. there's a real, you have to... And then when they fall out of love, yeah, then what are you falling out of love with? Maybe you didn't actually you know, love us. Maybe you kind of loved yourself. And Yeah, people like romantic comedies. They don't necessarily like marriage movies as exactly. much as, as uh, getting, you know, it's the fantasy. Oh, Parenthood was pretty funny. The what? Parenthood was pretty funny. That was yeah. a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> there, was a, there, was a, there were a couple of historians a couple of years ago, if you remember, um, Chasia Diner and someone else. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. I've only ever seen it written. Um, American Jewish historians who had this coming out op-ed in Haaretz. Oh, right. Uh, uh, we are no longer Zionists. Yeah, yeah. It was last it's, year, I think. It it's causing us yeah, some yeah. trouble with our social yeah, yeah. networks mm-hmm. and our friends and our this and our that. And it's, it's this whole, like... Yeah, yeah. Guess what? Whole, it's you this probably religious were, awakening they underwent. You probably weren't really Zionists. You were pro-Israel and now you're not. You were too pro-Israel right. in the sense that you weren't, you weren't interacting with a real society and you had some fantasy. And now you're an anti-Israel in the sense that there's an... You know... Being anti-Israel is like being anti-Canada. Like, right. I'm anti-Italy. Yeah. I don't think the Italians should have a state. Yeah, or anything. Just be anti-Italy. What does that mean? The sun rises the next morning. There's Italy with all right. the kids and all the, you know. So well, these are cartoons, and we talk too much in these cartoons. <laughs> uh, as always, it was a great conversation. Yeah, thank you and so much. Uh, I, 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 and I'm not sure what to title this episode exactly. I do want to title it. <laughs> diaspora versus Israel identity, but it's also pro-Israel is not Zionism. And, yeah. you know, so I'm going to have to think about that. Yeah. Uh, uh, but thank you for coming in. We really appreciate it. And again, talking at a topic that we wrestle with quite a bit and, and affects how we teach and, and how this is something that teachers both in Israel and outside of Israel, I think these issues have to be, at least in teachers' mind, explicit and addressed. And that conversation has to take place. So... You know, you're 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 giving us grist for the mill of getting that conversation yeah, going. Just just let's focus a long, hard look at at, uh, at how different we are and how little we actually understand each other yeah. and how bad we are at this. Uh, I can't help teachers at all except to tell them, you know, we really don't know much. We have sociology departments on both sides of the ocean that don't really research these mm-hmm. deep gaps. They're so busy researching, you know, other things. Well, good questions is helpful for good educators. Right. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Sure. Our pleasure. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Mike. And thank you, Ben, for bringing us to the end of the episode, which this is. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for listening to the Macomb Israel Teacher's Lounge podcast. Don't forget to share, subscribe, rate, and review. Join us next time.